I come to work every day for our people because I know like, you know, I know that someday those sailors, no matter how long they've served in the Navy, whether it's their initial commitment or 30 years or 40 years, are gonna be sitting around the dinner table or on the front porch or on the back porch talking about the things they did in the Navy. And they're not gonna talk about all the, you know, all the, all the folders with paperwork they signed. They're gonna talk about things like the traditions like your dad observed. They're gonna talk about standing watch in the Arctic with the Northern Lights above them. They're gonna be talking about being underway in the Caribbean where we had so many dolphins um, I was afraid to put the small boat in the water because the dolphins were like swarming us. They just wanted to play. They're like puppies. And so I'm just, I'm proud when I see young people come to me and uh, I think about the life that they had, have ahead of them. And I really, really hope that I've contributed something worthwhile to them. This is the Beats Working Show. We're on a mission to redeem work, the word, the place, and the way. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Join us at Winning the Game of Work. Welcome to Beats Working on the show this week, Growing Leaders Through Service. So when did you know what you wanted to do for your life's work? Some people know when they're kids. That was certainly the case for Jennifer Kuchar. After a field trip in the seventh grade to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, she knew she wanted to join the Navy. Jennifer didn't know what she would do in the Navy, but she wanted to be like those sailors she met. Smart, athletic, well-spoken, and confident. Fast forward to today, Admiral Jennifer Kuchar is one of the top-ranking women in the U.S. military. She is commander of the 11th Carrier Strike Group based in Everett, Washington. It's a collection of ships and aircraft with thousands of sailors and Marines that can deploy serious firepower anywhere, anytime around the world. Only four other women in the history of the Navy have had Carrier Strike Group command. The reason I wanted to have Admiral Kuchar on the show is to find out what it takes to rise through the ranks of the military and also learn why military service so consistently turns everyday civilians into exceptional leaders. Admiral Kuchar will tell you the secret is in the name, service. Admiral Jennifer Kuchar, welcome to the Beats Working Podcast. It's so great to have you here. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me today. I'm really happy to be here. Well, this is the first time we've had someone at your level of the military on the podcast, and I'm super excited because I want to cover all kinds of things in our conversation today. How you got into the military, how you rose through the ranks to become commander of Carrier Strike Group 11, based at uh, Naval Station Everett here in Washington state. And also, you know, your passion about uh, educating uh, girls when it comes to STEM, providing more opportunities that way. So we have a lot to cover and I'm just really grateful for the time that you're giving us today. So thank you. Yes, of course. Okay. Let's say that you met someone at a cocktail party and they're like, oh, so what do you do for a living? Um, How do you translate your current role, uh, Admiral, in terms of just something that we civilians could understand? Oh, I appreciate that question. Um, yeah, so uh, the Carrier Strike Group, um, we, uh, we have um, the essential node by which the Navy fights at sea. So certainly we have the aircraft carrier, which is the centerpiece of this um, group of ships, airplanes, um, and my headquarters staff is embarked on the aircraft carrier. We serve on the USS Nimitz, which is the first of its class of aircraft carriers, and we have um, surface ships, cruisers, and destroyers that are part of our group, as well as an air wing uh, made up of fighter aircraft, um, growlers, uh, which we have at NAS would be here in Washington State as well, um, and helicopters, and then um, airborne command and control airplanes. So um, that's really the basics of what the group is. It can be anywhere from six to eight ships. Um, and uh, I guess it's about the same number of uh, aircraft squadrons as well. Um, and we deploy together as a team um, all around the world. Wow. So it's a group of complementary 
uh, service men and women who have different roles all within this strike group. But the idea is that if something happens and we need to send some force to, to deal with something, that you all move as a group to that area. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, thanks so much for asking that question. So first, yes, it's about complementary capability at sea in the maritime environment. Um, the United States is a maritime country. We're surrounded by oceans, um, and the vast majority of um, of imports and exports travel across the ocean. Um, and so, especially for people who are listening that might be business leaders, um, chances are uh, goods and services that they require to do their job or that they are exporting travel via ocean. Uh, the Navy is unique in that the Navy uh, operates forward um, away from the United States. So we are always on deployment. We don't wait necessarily for a conflict to break out. We're always there. So let me give you an example. Um, recently, um, with the war in Israel, um, you've probably seen in the news that the Gerald R. Ford carrier strike group was operating in the area. That strike group was already on deployment, operating forward, providing a presence around the world. Um, when uh, the president said, OK, well, move over there <laughs> in the eastern Mediterranean and provide a deterrence force to uh, minimize the opportunity for other nations to widen that conflict. You may also have seen that the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group deployed. They were part, this was part of their normal schedule. They were already scheduled to deploy. And this is just part of our rotational deployment that we maintain in peace as well as in war um, to make sure that uh, we are keeping the seas safe for commerce and communication all the time. And not just for the U.S., um, but for every, every nation. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, it's like kind of like when you drive by a fire station here in the United States, you often see them out, uh, you know, dealing with hoses and, and testing equipment and doing this and that. And, and I guess the idea being is that you don't know when or where you're going to be needed next, but you have to be ready and you have to be kind of in proximity, right? That That's exactly right. And so um, we have, it's a ton, um Actually, we have 11 carrier strike groups, um, and one is permanently stationed in Japan. And we have uh, five on the East Coast, five on the West Coast, and they're all on rotation um, to always be ready um, at a moment's notice. And so we, we, we take pride in the fact that when something is uh, bubbling up where the president and our defense leaders say, we need to have a presence here. Who? Where is our aircraft carrier strike group? Where are they on deployment? And can we send them to the place we need them to be? Wow. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at someone who has trouble finding his shoes in the morning. Um, and I'm looking at you thinking, how in the world do you manage all those uh, moving parts? Um, uh, you grew up in the structure of the Navy, so I'm sure that you you understand the, the structure better than somebody from the outside. But I mean, just how do you, I mean, it must take an, an enormous amount of energy and structure and thought and training to be able to mobilize a group of that many people uh, so that everybody knows what they're doing and, and everybody does it safely. How, how did you get to that point of managing all those people uh, so well? Oh, <laughs> well, um, you know, unique to the military, um, we don't hire people in at the admiral and general level. So you spend 28 years learning your profession um, in a very, you know, a structured way. So we have, you know, professional development plans for every community in the Navy so that by the time you get to where I am, you have 28 years worth of experience or, or 30 um, and you've done everything else. So. You know, if I was a, an aviator um, and I was a, a pilot, I will have started out flying airplanes and then learning how to manage at the squadron level and then a group of squadrons. And we do the same thing for ships, too. So, for example, um, you know, I started out, I'm a career surface officer, which means I have learned how to operate surface ships um, throughout my career. Um, I've, gosh, served on um, eight ships. I've deployed, I think, eight times and, um, and all different positions and levels of responsibility and levels of authority. 
um, putting all of those pieces together. Um, and we have very senior people that work for me as well. We have captains, Navy captains, who are the squadron commanders of, you know, the, our destroyer squadron commander. Um, it came up the same way I did, and, and I had his job. And you can see the building blocks um, uh, all the way. So by the time you get to this point, you feel pretty confident that you know um, what's happening at all the levels underneath of you. So you don't waste a lot of time trying to learn the organization. Um, and that goes for, for the, uh, the pilots as well. Um, but I have a great team of people who are all very experienced people um, doing that. And I would also say the important part is um, adhering to a process. Um, you know, no, no matter where you go, chances are that all of the, the strike groups do things very similarly. Um, and then we feed into um, a structure above us. Um, that's all. It's about information management. It's about understanding the, the common picture um, and managing that information. It's not unlike um, people trying to understand supply chains or, or distribution chains. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that for us, it's distributing people and ships and airplanes and submarines. Yeah. And I think the cool thing about the U.S. military is that when you get into it, you, you swear an oath to the Constitution. And I think when we've seen some you know problems in other countries, some military leaders get to be so powerful that they sort of have, have these groups under them that are loyal to them as a person. But in, in our military, it, it's not a loyalty to a person. It's a loyalty to the Constitution, right? That's right. And I, I love it. Um, I think it's what makes us unique as Americans. I've never felt more patriotic than when I'm saying the oath and reminding me that um, it's about something bigger. It's about continuing the the American experiment. Um, and the people who wrote the Constitution knew that. Um, it's a, it's class, classic and timeless. They knew that there will always be people who seek um, power. And so they wrote that stipulation in there to make sure that uh, generals didn't overthrow the government, right? That's a timeless and classic thing as well. And so mm -hmm. I'm really proud of that fact. I'd love to go back in time now because when you first, when I first met you, you told me the story of how you um, got interested in the military. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think is so cool about your story is that when I started thinking about it, I think sometimes we don't think that children or young people are mature enough to know what they want to do for their life's work. And we sort of like, oh yeah, when you get older, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what you want to do. Mm -hmm. But uh, I thought it was just such a beautiful story. You're, you're a 13 year old, you're in the Girl Scouts, you go on a field trip to Annapolis, right? That's right. And, and on that field trip, you saw people in the military and you were like, I want to be like them. <laughs> and I just, I'd love it if you could retell that story because it is, it's such a cool story for a 13 year old to, to have that sort of like, wow, epiphany. That oh, cool I really appreciate that. I think this boils down to inspiring people to do good. Um, yeah. So, so I grew up in a, in a very, um, rural part of New Jersey. People ask what, why do they call it the garden state? I can tell you because I grew up among the gardens of the Garden State. Uh -huh. um, and we so we took a, a, a weekend trip to Annapolis, where the Naval Academy is. And uh, yeah, I was in seventh grade. And I had not seen a Navy ship. I didn't know anybody in the Navy. I didn't know what the Navy did. I had no relationship, no context at all for this trip. And we took a tour of the Academy. And I looked at these young people, the students, we call them midshipmen at the Naval Academy. And I looked at them and I thought, oh my gosh, they're smart, which I, I really was an academic, you know, that was important to me. I was very academically competitive. Um, and they're athletic because they all play sports and they're all physically fit. Um, and as they gave us our tour around, they were all very confident, well-spoken, charismatic. And I thought, this is the kind of person I want to be when I grow up. I didn't say, I want to fly airplanes, or I want to drive ships, or I want to be on a submarine. I thought, I want to be like this. And I'm sure, you know, certainly I could never, I wish I could go back in time and know who those people were and find them and tell them, 
because of you, there's me. And sometimes I get the chance to do that. Um, but I thought, okay, that's it. I, I want to be in the Navy because they're, being in the Navy means I get to be this person that I aspire to be um, in my mental picture. And so, of course, I came home and I told my parents, I'm going to join the Navy. And they were like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, where did this come from? Um, and even though I ended up not going to the Naval Academy and I had another path to becoming a Naval officer, um, I, I still every day think about um, when I come to work, who am I inspiring? And are there young um, sailors and are there young officers who look at me and think, someday I want to be her and I, I want to be that person? Um, and I hope so. And uh, that's why I'm still here. So you went through the ROTC program, is that right, to become an officer in the military? I did. Yes. Yeah. Tell me, how does that work as opposed to going to the, you know, the academies? Yeah. Um, so the Navy um, pays your tuition um, to go and sometimes more uh, to attend a civilian university. It's really a very interesting story, actually. And I, I in my last job, I oversaw the NROTC scholarship selection process um, and I was visiting, uh, was actually visiting the University of Southern California, and I was uh, visiting with the unit there. And I went into their building, and I saw that the building had been built in 1940. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating—the foresight of our executive leadership to understand that in 1940 we were going to need a larger officer corps than the service academies alone could produce. And it turns out that the person who created that program was Chester Nimitz. And so um, as I am in command of the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group, it inspires me to think about um, what he must have been thinking, um, you know, as he looked ahead to what the decade of uncertainty meant for him in the 1940s. And so um, the principle of this program is that... Um, we, we have uh, officers who graduate with degrees from civilian universities um, who then go through a commissioning program and enter the service. And so they teach you how to wear your uniform and they teach you naval history and uh, leadership and things like that that you do in addition to your civilian studies. Um, and the great thing about the Navy, uh, about the program is, the ROTC program, is that um, you know, the services can decide they need more people, and so they can offer more scholarships or less. And so it's a it's a great tool for them to um, manage the officer course that way. Uh, Admiral, everyone that I know who's who served in the military um, is is an exceptional human being. And I'm not joking. I, I have not met. I have a lot of friends. Uh, some are. One of my friends is a retired uh, rear admiral from Navy Region Northwest. Um, I've uh, others are you know colonels, others are, you know, captains, others are pilots, but to a person, they are exceptional. And I'd love your perspective on why that is, because um, I know that the military has standards, but there must be something about the training process and, and the process of doing the job that turns a, what could be an average human being into a really exceptional human being. Oh, thank you so much. I love talking about creating a sailor. Um, and that was also part of my job when I oversaw uh, boot camp. And we take people, especially in the United States, we have people coming from all over the world to join the Navy, um, to join the U.S. Navy and become Americans um, before every class graduates from boot camp. We have a naturalization ceremony. Um, so I love talking about that. I think a couple things. Um, values. Um, we have um, a core um, ethos, ethics. We have values, and we say, this is who we are. We tell the truth. We have courage. We commit to each other. We tell the truth. We make promises, and we keep them. Um, and while certainly from time to time individuals may fall short, this is, this is, our, um, this is our culture. And the second knob has been very clear in saying we our goal is building a warfighting culture of excellence. And so we have 
this code we look up to, and especially for people new to the Navy, and they say they really, you know, they they're understanding what the purpose is, what our mission is, what our values are, and they get inspired like young me, and they say, this is the kind of person I want to be. Um, and I think, you know, if you're in the service for, um, you know, for a long time, it becomes ingrained about who you are and how you make decisions and how you live your life. And so, um, and I think, you know, just the fact that we call it the service really demonstrates what we're talking about here. Um, you know, people serve their country. They make decisions to give up holidays, weekends, um, months and months of their lives. Some people volunteer to get shot at if that's, you know, you know, what, what it's called, if that's what is required of it. Um, and they look and they think about life outside of what's happening to them. Um, they think about being the best, you know, that the, um, the old army commercial that's coming back, you know, um, being all you can be. There's a grain of truth to that, that we as a team, as a culture and a people, um, unique to ourselves are always trying to make our, make each other better, which is not necessarily something that you see all the time. And in the civilian world, um, we support each other. Um, and we're always encouraging each other to be best and live up to that um, model of who you are as a person, what's important to you. So I, I think maybe that's why it seems unique in today's society. Yeah. And I think also to a person, they are also humble and they have a level of humility. But now it just, my, you know, the light bulb just went on when you started talking about it's not about me, it's about we. So in the training and in the service, if somebody's being selfish or self-centered, I'm guessing they get their chops busted pretty quickly because the expectation is, don't. it's not about me first, it's about we. That's right? exactly right. Our number one job here is warfighting teamwork um, all the time and not just, you know, when bullets are flying, but every day. Um, I, you know, I, I thought so much about that as a junior officer and, and so- and while it's 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 a funny story about how I got into the Navy, it's a better story about how I stayed in the Navy, and it's all about teamwork. Um, I'm kind of addicted to it, actually, if you would say that. I thrive on watching people um, learn, grow, do things they never thought were possible, and doing things together. So as a junior officer, I was stationed on a large amphibious ship. Um, it's uh, the centerpiece of an amphibious group that, uh, you know, so it might look like a little helicopter aircraft carrier. Um, and and uh, the Marines is really the centerpiece of the Marine group. Um, and I thought, um, you know, as a junior officer, um, you know, it's easy to get lost there. But then you realize that every single person on that ship is relevant and important to landing the landing force of Marines. You know, as a as a junior officer, I had a role to play, but so did the captain, the XO. Every single person was engaged in that effort. And at the end of the day, I thought, oh, we did it. Um, the same thing is true when I was on a destroyer and we did an underway replenishment. So think about this. Think about you driving your car down the highway and a gas station pulls up next to you and you're still driving down the highway and you're going to they're going to give you some gas some hoses and you're going to refuel while you're still driving it sounds crazy right you're going to open up the back you know the the hatch of your car or your trunk of your car they're going to put some food and supplies in there things you ordered off of uh, you know the internet they're going to put them in your trunk but we we do this at sea underway replenishment a replenishment ship comes they give us some hoses that we hook up to our ship and we take gas and food. Um, it's actually a really exciting idea and it keeps our ships at sea. Um, but, uh, and I thought, you know, as a, as a senior officer, when I was the number two and when I was the CEO of that ship, and I realized that there are 303 sailors on my ship and every single one of them is engaged in this effort. 
They are making sure that we take fuel safely. They make sure that we're driving the ship in a safe place. They make sure that the food that we got is getting down to the refrigerators, um, you know, and um, it's really exciting. So I'll, I'll also say, you know, we all wear symbols of our qualifications, you know, so it's pretty famous that aviators have their wings of gold, you know, but we all have those, um, those qualification pins. And it's not infrequent on a surface ship that a young officer, when it's time they've met all the qualifications to earn the, the pin, invites their, their division to participate in the pinning ceremony. Because every single person on the ship teaches you how to be an officer. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take this example because I always like to tell my culinary specialists, the people who make our food, um, and make sure that we eat and do a great job for us. A lot of times those people can be taken for granted. Um, it's including by their other, you know, their shipmates. Um, and I always tell them, if we don't eat and we don't shoot missiles and we don't hunt submarines and we don't launch airplanes, the aircraft carrier would come to a screeching halt if nobody on board could eat. And so um, I think it just reflects how every single person matters. And that's really exciting to me. Wow. I'd love to talk a little bit more about just what it's like to be on deployment. How long is a typical deployment in the Navy these days? And, and what, what happens during deployment? Oh, that's, that's a great thing to talk about. Um, I think our goal is to keep them around seven months, although they generally, you know, they'll fluctuate depending on other things that are going on. Um, and so before that, you're going to spend about a year doing training, um, first as an individual unit. So let's say, for example, on a destroyer, they'll spend that time um, certifying in all of the different areas. We'll have outside entities come and inspect them and make sure that they can safely operate the engineering plan, for example. Or, uh, you know, they'll fi test fire a missile to make sure that they can do it safely. And then you'll get the group together. Um, so a couple months before deployment, I will get all of my subordinate units together. And we will go to sea and we'll do some exercises to practice and make sure that we know how to safely operate together. And we can um, achieve all of our mission objectives. Um, and so that all of that takes place. You'll you'll be underway um, probably a few months before you even go on your deployment. Um, and then it depends on where you are in the world. Typically, um, carrier strike groups that deploy from the East Coast will go to the Mediterranean or the Persian Gulf. The Sixth Fleet is headquartered in Naples, um, and uh, that's a generality. Of course, they can go wherever um, we need them to go. Um, and so, but they tend to focus on those specific uh, issues uh, in the in the world, and then of course the the carrier strike groups in the Pacific deploy um, to the Pacific area of operations, um, and so you'll tend to spend your training focused on those areas. Um, and while being away from home, you know everyone's sad to leave their family, right? Nobody in the military enjoys leaving their family. We all love our family, um, but we know this is the important thing that we've signed up to do. Um, we have mission and we have a purpose and that's what keeps us motivated every day to keep getting better. Um, we know that it's important that our, um, our ship, our submarine, our airplanes, they don't do the United States any good sitting in port. And so we know it's important to take them overseas and show that the United States um, is sailing around the world. So I think, you know, sailors um, need to be reminded of that from time to time, um, especially, you know, those who are deployed over Christmas. Um, I also really enjoy um, being at sea. And so, um, you know, it's fun for me to have this, this environment where, especially on a small ship or probably on a submarine, everybody knows everybody. It's like a family. Um, and so you have a, a, a life, a pattern of life at sea that gives you some comfort. Um, so, for example, some of the favorite things we like to do is movie night. It's a fun tradition 
because we, you know, we have lots of traditions and we like to, to really instill that sense of culture with our traditions. Um, so movie night, of course I have some rules. Um, you know, I always say if you can't sit next to your mom and watch this movie, <laughs> I love it. then we're not going to be watching this movie. And <laughs> Um, which is totally fine. And so, um, but yeah, like, you know, um, so, you know, Navy focused movies, including the ones back from, uh, you know, World War II area, like Mr. Roberts, um, and, uh, in the K mutiny, I know there's a, an update coming from that. And, and so just kind of reinforcing that sense of heritage, um, and camaraderie. It's yeah. all about the camaraderie. So, you know, watching, I'm a big college football fan. So, um, you know, Saturday, always have college football on in the, the main meeting areas, you know, um, on a on a ship. It's the wardroom. That's where the officers dine and meet and uh, and share, um, you know, uh, just general camaraderie with each other there. Um, so that's fun. I like to do that. And then, of course, on the aircraft carrier um, Sunday, we always have a big brunch um, especially in the, in the officer's wardrooms that, uh, you know, we always look forward to having homemade waffles and it's a, it's a nice time to, to relax, um, and take stock. So, um, and then typically, um, typically once every 30 to 45 days, um, you'll pull into a port to kind of refresh your mind, right? Everyone gets tired, and certainly operating in a risk-inherent environment, we don't want people to lose focus. Um, and so... Um, and can you get off the ship during those those ports of call? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I have been very fortunate. I spent most of my career uh, home ported in Norfolk, which is uh, our largest Navy base in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, deploying all throughout the Mediterranean. And so as I was a young girl and I thought, join the Navy, see the world, and I have. Boy, have I. Um, I've been all over Europe and, uh, and now most recently I've visited Japan and it's been, uh, really exciting. And so sailors take a lot of pride in, uh, visiting places all around the world and comparing notes with each other about where have you been? Um, and it's been, it's been very exciting. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more just about, um, like living quarters. So like when you're on a ship. Is there any like personal space where it's like I'm in my, I'm just in my room or, or are you always like constantly like right next to someone? How, how does privacy work on a ship? There's not a lot of private space. Um, you know, certainly depending on the size of the sh- of the ship. Um, but no, not really. And more so for officers. Um, you know, officers typically share a stateroom with at least one other person. The more junior you are, the more people who you share a stateroom with, um, you know, um, j- junior officers on their first or second sea tour may share a, a stateroom with anywhere from three to five other people. <laughs> and so you really don't have a lot of space for our enlisted folks who live in large birthing compartments. Um, you know, on the aircraft carrier, I think a birthing compartment can be about 80 people. Wow. Um, and they have the space. That's uh, whatever is underneath of their bed, their rack, is what they can bring with them. Wow. Sort of like the uh, <laughs> flying on the airplane and everything has to fit in that little space. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know more about uh, what's your best advice, Admiral, when it comes to maybe talk to that young person who's thinking about a career in the military. What's your best advice for planning the trajectory of your career and and planning for, you know, how do you... How does growth occur? Is it something that you can be mentored into or how did that work for you? So going back to, you know, your, your comment on humility, hmm. um, I think, well, there's two things. One, I think young people sometimes get very overwhelmed with the thought of making a commitment. Um, wow, joining the military, that's a five-year commitment. I can't think about what I'm going to do five years from now. But it can also offer you some space because, you know, today a lot of young people can't, you know, they can't imagine what they want to do with their lives. So I would encourage people, join the military and give yourself some space to decide what you're good at and what you'd like to do. So for me, um, you know, I was kind of, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentored, mentioned mentorship. 
I, I think I was kind of aimless for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I joined the Navy um, and as a junior officer, um, I couldn't really find a place where I fit in. And I think some of that is just a reflection of a different, you know, 1995 was a different time and place. Um, and so some of that culture was about proving yourself, proving you belonged. And for me in particular, I was among the second year of that women were allowed on combat ships. And so there was um, a, a lot of pressure um, to demonstrate that you could fit in and people wanted to kind of test you. Um, I don't think that's what we have today. I think we have a much more mentoring culture here uh, and people can show you the possibilities of what you're good at, what you can improve upon and how you can learn and grow in the future. So I think, you know, as I talk to JOs, I tell them, you don't have to make a commitment to be an admiral today, but think about what you want to accomplish here. Um, and every time someone checks into my command, I ask them, what are your goals for this, this tour? Um, and sometimes they have them and sometimes we'll help create them. And it wasn't until I was a mid-grade officer that I had a captain who took interest in my career. Um, and he, it wasn't just me personally. It was all of us as, as um, mid-grade officers. He, all, he had a process for sitting us all down. He made these binders for us. And he said, okay, let's talk about where you've been, where you're going, what you're good at, and what you can improve upon. It was, it was funny, um, you know, as a young officer trying to prove myself, I had a bit of a temper. And my captain sat me down and he said, you're really great at your job, but if you want to be the captain of a ship someday, you're going to have to control your temper because the way you're treating people um, is not going to go well for you. And wow. I really took that to heart. And he was 100% right. And um, it's definitely not uh, the way that I tend to operate now. And there's lots of those stories. Um, you know, I had um, an, another mentor when I was, um, I was a Commodore. Um, and I was uh, in command of a squadron of destroyers. And my boss, who was the strike group commander, said to me, what, what do you think you're going to do next? And I said, next? <laughs> and he said, okay, let's have a serious conversation about the future of your career in the Navy. And I thought, but my career in the Navy's over. I'm already a captain. He's like, oh, boy, let's talk about this. And so it's kind of a little bit about building a resume for executive leadership in the organization. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was really meaningful for me because I, those two people in particular, without their coaching, without their phone, you know, ability to phone a friend, I wouldn't be here. Hmm. Was it hard as a female in the early days? Was it, was it really sort of like you, you need to prove yourself and people were maybe a little harder on you than they would have been on, on a male, uh, sailor or what, what was that like at the, in the early days as compared to today? Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, I think it was, I, I, I liken it to um, being picked last for the kickball team. Like they said, okay, Congress said we had to take girls, so you're it. Let's go. Get over here. Don't cause a lot of trouble. I think the expectations were low. Um, I don't think anyone expected much out of it. Um, you know, certainly, um, Admiral Frank Hetty talks a lot about this, our VCNO and nominated to be the chief of naval operations because she was also going through that. Um, you know, that, um, people didn't know what to expect. Um, they, and so, um, we tried to fit in. Here's the difference between what I saw then and what I see now for young people and parents of young people considering a career in the Navy. Every admiral who is my peer has always been in a Navy where there were women on ships and there were women flying jet airplanes. They don't know anything different, and they have seen people excel in those positions. Um, I see young women officers owning the Navy. They have this sense of ownership about this is our Navy, and we're going to make it better, and we're going we're gonna to coach and mentor and train people so that they can take our place. 
And since I have much less time left in the Navy than I have behind me, as I look to all those people, I think, how can I set them up for success as they go on? How do I give them the building blocks of a career that will enable them to lead others as they go on? I have, um, I have a, a chart in my office, and we in the Navy call MAPS charts. And it is the last time that I uh, was in command of my ship. And at the end, the quartermasters who navigate the ship, they took that chart and they signed the back of it. And they sent, you know, little well-wishers, you know, and they signed their names. And as I look at the people who signed that chart, they have all gone on to to senior enlisted leadership positions. They've gone on, you know, the officers have gone on to command positions. And I think about investing in our future and how I hope that, you know, I have done a good job in investing in people. And I think certainly that's the difference in our culture today in the Navy than it was when I was a JO. Yeah. How much say does someone have when they first enter the Navy as to what they actually do for a job? How does that process work? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, this is about, um, so, you know, obviously most people are coming from a co- from college if you're an officer. Um, enlisted folks is a little different process. So if you enlist, you go to the recruiting station and you enlist in the Navy, you will take um, a a standardized test, the Armed Armed Services uh, Vocational uh, Aptitude Battery, ASVAB. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will, the score of your ASVAB will determine what ratings are open to you. And it's generally based on your ability to um, d- maybe do some math, to read and write. Uh, I, I remember when I took this test, I took it um, in high school. And there was one section of the test, and you had to tell which way the gears were turning. And, and I, I don't know that I did very well on that section of the test. So they give you this battery of tests, and then how well you, you perform determines what ratings are open to you. So those people who score very high are fire controlmen, so they operate the combat systems, missile systems. Corpsmen are medics. Um, for officers, um, some of the, the service selection is based on grades. Um, if you go to the Naval Academy or ROTC program, you'll also have a series of leadership qualities that you're evaluated on while you're in the commissioning program. And you're ranked. So it's a competitive ranking. And they will start with number one. And they will say, hi, number one, what would you like to do? And typically that person wants to be a SEAL or a pilot. And then they get to number, you know, 720. It makes you, hi, number 720. (laughs) That was me. And they said, congratulations. You're going to be, you know, a surface warfare officer typically. Um, And not to, to, you know, of course, I love my community. um, But, you know, for the pilots, they need people who are very good in math and science. And And for nuclear trained officers, they need people who can do a lot of calculus um, and so they take, oh, you got an A or a B in calculus. Congratulations. You're going to be a submariner because you can split some atoms for us. <laughs> and so that's kind of how this, this process works. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that that's the final answer. It's the start of your career. And for me, this was the start of my career. Um, you know, so I went to George Washington University and I wanted to be an intelligence officer um, because I thought I had visions of giving people high-level briefings of, you know, uh, crises all over the world. And they said, congratulations, you're going to be a surface warfare officer. And certainly that's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I always tell young people, if you are a team athlete, if you play football, if you play baseball, um, basketball, you want to be a surface warfare officer. Because if you thrive on teamwork the way that I do, um, this is the place for you. Um, and as we talked about earlier, this is why I've stayed. Um, but yeah, so, so there is some choice, um, but it's not open for everyone and you need to meet the qualifications. And so, you know, like we talked about a little earlier, you know, STEM, um, it is just a, a means to an end of making sure that we have people who have the capacity 
for learning very learning to operate very complex systems and both officers and our enlisted folks who do some very complicated things with information technology as well. My dad served in the Navy as a reservist in the early 1960s, just when things were starting to percolate in Southeast Asia. He was actually uh, stationed on a ship called the USS Whitehurst that was based on Lake Union in downtown Seattle. There's an, the old armory building there. My dad was a boiler tender, so I'm guessing he scored pretty low <laughs> because he used to have to take salt tablets, and I think it was four on, four off uh, around the clock to keep the boilers stoked on this on this ship. Um, but the thing that I always loved as a kid, uh, when we were when it was time for bed, he would do the whistles that they used to have on the ship, and he'd he'd, he'd go, "I'll hear this," and he would go into this this you know this ritual that that would mean you know lights out uh, on the navy ship, and uh, it's it's just uh, I have such fond memories of that, and I know that even though my dad you know served for just a year or two. Uh, during that period that it had a, a big impact on him and just the camaraderie and the culture uh, I think was, was, was a lasting thing for him. Do they, I, I'm guessing they don't, they don't still use, do they still use the old whistles and all of that stuff? Of course we still do. <laughs> of course we do. As I do that to my daughter too. I, you know, I sound revelly in the morning. Now, oh, lovely, lovely. <laughs> taps, you know, ta- you know, taps, taps, lights out, maintain silence about the decks, now taps, um, and uh, whistles to call attention. It's funny, you know, so there's a term of endearment we call each other shipmate. And uh, it goes back to the olden, uh, t- you know, days of sail where the, uh, there's still some of that, that the areas of the ship where you would take your mess, you would eat. Um, you, they would call each other messmates. So if you think back to, you know, like Nelson on the Victory, you know, or the Constitution, the different sections of the ship where people ate, they referred to this person as their messmate. It was a term of endearment. Huh. And so today we talk about people as shipmates. So as my daughter was bringing home her prospective fiance to meet mom and dad, she said to him, it's all going well unless my mother calls you shipmate. And then it's not. It means you screwed something up. Um, because I call her shipmate all the time. Like shipmate, what what's going on with your your messy room? Oh, it's when you call her out. Yeah, that's when something. I call her out. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Admiral, what's your what's your most proud moment of your career? Oh boy, there's so so many of them. Um, you know, um. Certainly, I've been privileged to command the Navy at many levels now. This is the third time I've been in command, but command of a ship, and I was so very proud. Almost every single day, I was in command of the things that the people, uh, the sailors and the officers who worked for me were doing, Um, you know, in command of a squadron of ships. I was so very, very proud of the COs of those ships and the things they were doing far, far away. Um, and so I've been proud of um, people introducing their families to me. And I've been proud of them saying, um, oh, Admiral, this is my wife or this is my daughter. This is my dad. Can I take a picture with you? Hmm. And so we had the opportunity when we were coming back from deployment on the Nimitz um, we had a tiger cruise, which means that we had the opportunity to bring uh, family guests, family and friends on board the ship. And uh, we had, gosh, like 800 family and friends on board the ship coming back from Hawaii back to San Diego. And as I walked around the ship, all of those sailors and officers had their parents there with them or their um, you know, their spouse, you know, not their spouses, but their parents or their siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, can I take a picture with you? I had so many dads who said, Admiral, can I get a selfie with you? And it reminded me why I come to work every day. And I come to work every day for our people because I know like, you know, I know that someday those sailors, no matter how long they've served in the Navy, whether it's their initial commitment or 30 years or 40 years, are going to be sitting around the dinner table or on the front porch or on the back porch talking about the things they did in the Navy. And they're not going to talk about all the, you know, all the, all the folders with paperwork they signed. 
They're going to talk about things like the traditions like your dad observed. They're going to talk about standing watch in the Arctic with the northern lights above them. They're going to be talking about being underway in the Caribbean where we had so many dolphins. Um, I was afraid to put the small boat in the water because the dolphins were like swarming us. They just wanted to play. They're like puppies. (laughs) And so I'm just, I'm proud when I see young people come to me and uh, I think about the life that they had have ahead of them. And I really, really hope that I've contributed something worthwhile to them. Yeah. Uh, That's, I think we should, uh, take that what you just said and put it into a commercial because I, I would join the Navy after listening to that. <laughs> um, before we wrap things up, Admiral, I'd love to ask you just about the military as as a vehicle to get you ready for careers outside the military. And I know that it's it's been somewhat of a struggle sometimes for people to make the transition from the military to uh, civilian jobs. But I think the struggle has more to do with society's perception of veterans and not the veterans' capabilities. Because my brother runs a machine shop that makes airplane parts, and he goes specifically to job fairs and looks for veterans because they can lead and they can follow, and they're smart, and they show up on time, and they 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 honor their word, it, it, just all the attributes that you said before. What's your best advice to people who are making that transition from the military to civilian life? And also just for business owners. I mean, a lot of business owners uh, listen to this podcast. Um, and and just, I'd love for you to just speak to that, that issue of the transition. So two things. One, I think you've hit the nail on the head. They're leaders. Give them a task. They know how to do it. They'll get all the materials. They'll tell other people what to do. Um so I think that's a tremendous talent. They'll be honest and transparent um, in their communications, which is important. Um, and so I think, you know, many people look for veterans, you know, at job fairs and different things because they know they're people they can depend on. You tell them what time they come to work, and they come to work at that time. Um, they stay late even if you don't ask them to because they know that they have to get something done. They have pride and accomplishment. They want to do a good job. Um, and so they're going to stay and long as the, you know, until the job gets done. I think sometimes people struggle with a transition um, because there's less structure. And this is just my own personal observation. Hmm. They're used to being rules. They're also used to people following orders. And sometimes for c- civilians, they're like, Dude, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> so I think sometimes they're used to having a lot of structure, and sometimes people struggle in the beginning. Um, they also struggle, I think, sometimes because everyone is not as team-oriented um, as veterans are, and so it confuses them sometimes. Um, and, you know, we all postpone that day that we have to get out of the, the military, um, but, you know, everybody you know, there's, there's laws about that. You have to get out at 40 years and then that's the end. Um, but you know, it happens to everybody and I dread that moment. Um, and so for, for business owners, I think the best thing you could do is coaching. I think it's the best opportunity that you have to ensure that the veterans that you've hired for all of the great things that we know, um, continue to succeed in your organization as they make that, uh, and recognizing that it's different and weird. Um, you know, the last job I had as a civilian, I was like, uh, you know, I was, um, I, I think I worked at the custard stand, you know, in summertime, you know, that was like, you know, I wrote and my now you're commanding battleships. Cause I, I wasn't it. old enough to drive, you know, <laughs> last time I had a civilian job. I'll tell you a funny story. I did a fellowship. The Navy offers this, these wonderful federal ex- well, federal executive fellowships. And so there was a, a, at the think tank that I worked at uh, in DC, you know, on my fellowship, which was a great opportunity to learn, listen, uh, read, um, and get engaged with what's happening in the world. There were um, representatives from all services. So Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. Uh, the first day of our fellowship, we got there, it was like, you know, July, it was the middle of July in DC. And we all showed up at eight o'clock in the morning and the building was locked because no one comes to work in July at eight o'clock in the morning at a think tank in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And they're like, thank you for your service. Come back in September. 
like, you're, you're good. Take some time off. And we were like scratching our heads. We don't know what to do with all this time off. <laughs> I'd love to wrap things up by talking about how you are redeeming work when it comes to your work in the military. And on the form that you filled out for us, which we ask all of our guests to do, I love what you put down here is, is essentially what every top entrepreneur has put down uh, when it comes to that question, how are you redeeming work? And your answer was empowering every person in the organization to contribute their unique talents and strengths to make work more meaningful every day with a sense of connection and purpose. I mean, that's, that's like the mission statement of every top entrepreneur in the <laughs> world. And uh, I love that there is this, you are so in sync with what these entrepreneurs are doing to redeem work. So I'd love for you to just sort of end on on that note in terms of what redeemed work looks like through through the military lens. Yeah. So during the course of our conversation, you know, we've talked about, you know, why people join the Navy, why I joined the Navy, why we stay, what we do here, what's meaningful for us. Everybody comes to this organization wanting to accomplish something. And it's our obligation as leaders to give them all of the tools, support, and structure to accomplish great things. And I think, you know, as as society has evolved, leadership has evolved. Leadership is not telling somebody what to do. Like anybody could do that. That's not leadership. Leadership is encouraging people to develop professionally, giving them coaching and mentoring so that they can grow and develop setting goals with them, stretch goals. Hey, I know you don't know how to do this yet, but I'm going to teach you how to do it. Um, Removing barriers to their success, having transparent communication back and forth with them and saying, checking in on them. Hey, we set this stretch goal. How are you doing? What can I do to to help you? Um, You know, when I do midterm counseling for people, I ask them, what are the barriers to your success and how can I move them for you? I think, you know, that is how you improve the quality of someone's work environment and really inspire them. The other part of this that I think, you know, is unique, maybe maybe unique to the military, um, is that we know um, that we need people to take initiative and responsibility in ways that I, I can't see every day. My people go and do things all day long, and I don't know what they're doing. I I expect that I've set up a good structure of communication and guidelines for them so that they can excel in that organization. Because if we rely on having to tell people what to do and giving them a list of tasks every day, uh, we will fail. And not only will we fail to accomplish the things that we need to do, but we'll never grow We'll never have innovation and creativity and problem solving to the level that we need for people operating, um, especially in an environment that relies on people to do uh, great things almost every day. Um, so I'm I'm excited. I'm always excited to see what my people are going to accomplish, and I'm always excited to see what they bring to me. And instead of bringing me problems, I love when they bring me solutions. Ma'am, we identified an issue, and this is what we're going to do about it. And what do you think if we did this instead? Um, You know, and and I have felt empowered by my chain of command to do that. Um, Recently, I came to my boss and I said, I think this process worked 20 years ago, but I think it's not working right now. And here's what I think we should do instead. Um, And so I'm excited about the future, and I'm excited to see how when even junior sailors come to me, and say, I'm taking responsibility and I'm taking the initiative to contribute something well-meaning to our environment, um, it lets me know that um, the future leadership of our organization is going to be in good hands. Hmm. Well, Admiral, this has been such a, an honor for me to spend some time with you and really have learned a lot about just how the military works. And and after talking with you for the better part of an hour, I, I, I'm not wondering anymore why these people are so exceptional. It's just, it's just absolutely clear in that environment that you talked about, creating that environment for accountability and flexibility to let them become great 
Um, that's just fantastic. So I want to say thank you for your service and what you have done for decades for our country and for uh, just being such a great leader and such a great example for, for the men and women that you lead. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for having me. And you're, you're very, very kind. I appreciate that. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to show producer and web editor Tamar Medford. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from our Contributors Corner and Sidekick Sessions. Join us next week for another episode of Beats Working, where we are winning the game of work.